0: Podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.
1: Saab, uh, I'm a senior fellow in the uh, Director of the Defense and Security Program at the Middle East Institute uh, here in Washington. I still have a feeling, personally, I could be wrong, that this still has the potential at any moment to blow up once again because some kind of an infrastructure, without getting into deep analysis, has been created as a result of these demonstrations. Um, Still a lot of inadequacies that i've written about and i've been blasted for, but I still feel like it won't require much should there be a desire or another trigger point for that popular movement to once again explode and lead to mass protests. The demands has been on societal conditions; mm-hmm. it really has been far less talk of the arms of Hezbollah or of foreign policy issues of Lebanon's political orientation or what kind of role it plays in the region. But if you want to start analyzing, uh, um, you know, the way forward um, beyond the calls in the streets, there's no way you can separate what's going on inside the country with matters that are more external to it and that have to do with beyond just jobs and economic opportunity, but also the role of the 800-pound gorilla in Lebanon, which is Hezbollah. I mean, we've reached a point now to make it more current that, okay, to basically get an an IMF assistance package or not, which seems to be like the last resort at this point. Yeah. Whether you agree with that or not, yeah. this is where we are. Yeah. And guess who's the number one uh, actor who is not interested in uh, getting any kind of assistance from the IMF. Some reasons are understandable, others completely not. And that's Hezbollah. So you're already seeing the integration of these issues that may not have been that apparent in the calls of the protesters, but now to move forward, you certainly can see now the interconnectedness of it all. Right? So, starting from social fabric to the nature of the political system, and then issues of sovereignty and monopoly over the use of force. How the hell can you separate all these issues? You can't. And that's what makes it so complicated. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like you, you, you try to put your finger on what really is the problem here. Well, good luck with that.
0: That actually is a nice segue to a recent article you released in the National. Is there a way for you to see the domestic pain? the economic and financial pain that Lebanese are going through, alleviated with a group like Hezbollah that is so central at the moment to Lebanon's security, foreign policy, and domestic politics. So we're going to be stuck
1: in um, the universe of management. We're Mm -hmm. not going to be able to really... uh, fix anything in the presence of such a formidable actor that is quite opposed to any kind of IMF or, as they see, U.S. intervention. And I'm fine with management at this point because the underlying conditions here are just so numerous and complex that this is definitely going to be a generational uh, challenge. Yes. Um, So management is perfectly fine, but Mm -hmm. we're not even close to that yet. Let me put a huge caveat on the table. I'm not an economist, Mm. um, and I'm not super excited, obviously, about what the IMF does to weak countries that have lost their sovereignty or any kind of leverage. But I do understand the basics, which is that you still have some kind of a negotiation with the IMF over the terms uh, of the assistance package and its duration and the procedures and what have you, right? Right. Um, My biggest fear is that there is no consensus in the country. Or even a political system that is legitimate enough and representative enough to make such crucial decisions yeah. over uh, not only accepting that kind of assistance from the IMF, but also how to execute it. Right. So I mean, it goes back to what we talked about before in terms of how everything is tied. Let's yeah. just say we do accept that kind of assistance from the IMF and Hezbollah. For reasons that have to do with pressure, its own survival, its own pragmatism, which it's been quite famous for. Yeah. Let's say they do get on board with that. Right, right. Okay, after that, then how do you
0: execute? That um, Exactly. So, that, so it remains an ultimate stumbling block right, regardless.
1: Right. And yeah. for those who are, whether it's for their own ideological concerns or their own analytical reasons as to why the IMF solution is not exactly a you know, uh, a slam dunk. Yeah. You know, you you have to tell them, like, what is the alternative at this point and how much worse things would be without it. Yeah. Because if you are arguing for the preservation of the status quo, this status quo is completely untenable. Yeah. I mean, it's only a matter of time before we completely go bankrupt. And so you have to weigh the costs of an IMF package, which are quite obvious and evident because it's been... The experience of many other countries in the region. Just take a look at what The Economist has really recently written about, you know, the bad experiences of Arab countries who have taken loans from the IMF. Um, That's evident. But there's no way you can honestly assess that without comparing it to
0: the uh, status quo in Lebanon. You actually, you portrayed it in a way that there are ways to at least alleviate True suffering, in other words, starvation and and yes. that kind of yeah. Just prevent know, the worst. Preventing y- the worst, and yeah. And that's uh, I think you
1: alluded to it. That's yeah. what I uh, tried to convey in uh, my recent article in the, in the National, which is that um, in addition to humanitarian assistance, which would include, of course, naturally uh, medicine and yeah. food, I think we've gotten to that point, yes. right? I mean, how how, how depressing I mean, is yeah, it? Yeah, how sad yeah, is it that we're talking about that in Lebanon, right? right. I don't think. I would have ever imagined getting to a point in that uh, country, with such a highly educated society and having all sorts of indicators that are just higher than any other in the Arab yeah. world uh, that we're now talking about severe shortages of food and medicine Right. but this is where we are and in addition to that um, and try to circumvent the challenge of Hezbollah and not just Hezbollah the ruling faction quite frankly, the For corrupt sure. ruling yeah. faction, okay, yeah. as I made it very clear in another article that one of the most um, uncomfortable truths about Lebanon for me is that the root of all problems is not Hezbollah. In that universe of help that we can receive uh, that could uh, improve the situation without completely fixing it, is not only the humanitarian stuff, but also the promotion uh, of um, small and medium sized businesses yeah. that would be immediately impactful. Right. Right? Uh, And that would be that kind of money would be deposited elsewhere outside the country, essentially, so that the corrupt politicians wouldn't have a hand on it in an international fund um, executed by clean uh, vetted NGOs, um, which we have a lot of in Lebanon. Right. There's not going to be a problem finding them. Yeah under the watchful eye of international bodies. I think this is the sentiment now in Washington. This is how you're going to be able to balance between the desire to punish Hezbollah without completely uh, leading uh, uh, the country to collapse. Right? right. This is that now, I'm going to call a
0: realistic medium, where you can try to achieve both at the same time. You know, in a way, and I'm I'm gonna place both articles in the details box because I think they touch on two things. I, I spoke with Hussein Ibish uh, mm-hmm. about a, a similar angle, and he was he was describing that you need to have sustainable bottom up and top down pressure. Yeah, and for him, top is not the the corrupt elites in Lebanon; it's here, of course, There's pressure from abroad yeah. towards those uh, politicians. Yeah. yeah, and enough. Uh, Credible voices on the ground demanding mm-hmm. dignity, mm-hmm. and if you have both of them sustaining themselves long term, you may see change down the road. Yeah, and I thought that was a very optimistic reading of the situation, yeah. but it's a good reading. Yeah, it's also Jeff Feldman. Jeff Feldman, right. when he yeah.
1: testified yes. in Congress, yeah, he did talk about uh, the fusion of international pressure during the March fourteen yes. episode, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, and the genuine aspirations on the And then the, the coalition ground. itself in Lebanon. Yeah. Right? Right. And so bringing those back again in this yes. particular con-
0: context might also be helpful. Really from your own sort of interactions, your own experience, that does Washington really care at this point what happens to Lebanon? Mm,
1: Outside I don't think of there's the, an absolute yeah. answer to that. Mm. It's obviously a matter of degrees, and I think yeah. you've alluded to it. I think it's reasonable to say it cares less.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and for... And can I just interrupt here, Ahmed, mm-hmm. also including Hezbollah in that. Sure, That they yeah. care maybe less about Hezbollah today than they did 15 years ago.
1: I don't know the answer to that because I can give you conflicting answers. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. On the one hand, there seems to be near obsession with the maximum pressure campaign against Iran. Yes. Of which Hezbollah is a huge part. Right. So, in that regard, they care. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. On the other hand, the country itself, uh, I would suspect that they care less about it yeah. even though I could still make a persuasive argument at least theoretically yeah. that Lebanon if you were to pursue effectively this new priority of great power competition with the Russians and them already having basically gained a strong foothold in Syria
0: right?
1: losing Lebanon is not exactly an enticing proposition also, especially yes. that we might be miraculously on the verge of Extracting basically uh, uh, natural gas from the region. So if the Russians are going to be dominant in that region,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. then what does that do to the great power competition? So maybe now the context is broader for the Americans as far as Lebanon is concerned. I think that the whole democracy promotion, obviously, project uh, of the Bush administration is completely gone now. Um, There's far less interest overall in the Middle East, not just in... Lebanon, obviously, there's a new priority that uh, is far less focused on counterterrorism. Right, right. Um, then it comes down to personalities in the U.S. government that could push mm-hmm. uh, the needle and the policy issue. I mean, personalities matter. It's not just uh, you know words on paper in terms right, of what the right. policy is towards the country. There are not many champions currently mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of Lebanon, whether it's in the executive branch. Uh, beyond, of course, CENTCOM and the Department of Defense, who obviously have a strong interest in maintaining a close relationship with the LAF. But overall, what we had in 05
0: yeah.
1: is no longer existent. Uh, so whether so, it's in yeah. a strong ambassador mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the likes of Jeff Feltman, yes. a strong local coalition in Lebanon, or at least not strong, at least an existing coalition yeah. that seemed friendly to the West and, of course, allied with the United States at the time. None of those things exist now. Yeah. And so not having a strong interlocutor, mm-hmm. not having a strong constituency in Lebanon, all of those personalities, those people at the end of the day, their non-existence matters a lot. Yeah. Uh, not to mention the now changing geopolitical context. And then you end up with a much weaker U.S. policy towards Lebanon and much right. less interest in the country. I mean, I can make the same case about Jordan. Okay, or any other country in the Arab world that is relatively small and sort of has indirect uh, uh, impact on America's interests around the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the reason why it's still very strong between us and the Jordanians is because there's a Jordanian king with whom we have an excellent relationship.
0: So there's no domestic, there's no even flicker of that happening at the moment in Lebanon, and that. Also adds to American reluctance. There's not no one really to. If I have engage. a relationship with yeah. you, you're
1: not putting in much into that relationship.
0: Neither am I. No. How is it going to sustain itself? I get the feeling of genuine reluctance from any actor, not just the Americans. I mean, sort of look at look to the region. The usual suspects that come about and try to give a lifeline to Lebanon, they seem to be absolutely reluctant right now. The French are not advocating much. Uh, it's it's almost like. There's a moment where the Lebanese are dealing with Lebanon on their own. for Because there's also a sense of fatigue here Absolutely, and yeah. dramatic frustration. Within that, though, is that an m- opportunity for Lebanese to finally figure things out?
1: That opportunity? Come on. It should no. have been there a long time ago.
0: Okay. I mean, I don't think this yeah. is
1: now the trigger
0: of yeah, like yeah, wake-up
1: yeah. call. Like, aha, we have an opportunity to take matters in our own hands.
0: Yeah. Are you kidding me? That's actually the best way to bring up the earlier article, which is why I reached out to you still relevant, even though things have gotten worse. (laughs) Maybe Mm. it's more relevant. I don't know. Mm. Um, In in a way, it's almost like a, a definition of what a revolution is. And you were kind of just challenging that, saying this is why it might not be a revolution. But you found a way to break down all that's been happening, the good and the bad, but also show that things just don't line up for a better Lebanon right now. And five months in, We still have protesters on the street. There's low-level violence. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, I mean, every now and then politicians get kicked out of restaurants. Right. So there's that kind of symbolic stuff happening. Yep. From your own eyes, has any of that become a political voice beyond street
1: rhetoric? Yeah, the short answer is yes. Yes. I think it has become a political force. Political force. I mean, call them almost like auditors, basically.
0: Interesting. Anything okay. that yeah. the
1: government now does has to keep a close eye on the pulse of the street. Right. I don't think it's that easy anymore, especially with international pressure, mm-hmm. to completely dismiss the wishes of the street. Obviously there's no direct communication between the street and the government. Right. Right. For reasons that I mentioned also. Yes. We don't want to present a leader, he might he or she might get killed, yeah. we prefer decentralization. Yes. All that stuff. Okay. Yeah regardless, I feel like whatever the government proposes now, knowing that they are vulnerable themselves, and they are, at least in my eyes, vastly illegitimate, illegitimate yeah. even though they gain the confidence vote in the parliament. But we all know that the parliament is made up of people who want to preserve the status quo, yes, right?
0: Exactly.
1: It's not people who are in the streets. Given that sense of vulnerability i feel like at least i hoped it would be much wiser for them to vet whatever proposals they come up with with the street and so now there is really it's not just a voice but it's a political force in the country i do feel that it is sustainable because at least mostly the crisis is not going to go away anytime soon the fuel of the protesters happens to be the crisis obviously right and great, I don't want to have people in the streets uh, forever uh, just for the sake of it. Obviously, it's all yeah, tied sure. to the conditions of the country. Right. But because this is
0: a long-term problem, yeah. I don't see them going away anytime soon. Do you see it translating into something that can engage the state at some point? Because I like uh-huh. what you said, auditor. And that's a, a, very, that's a great way of ex- ex- exactly what's going on. These two buildings in Hamra that were going to be knocked down, people showed up. They said no, the government stopped. That has never happened before. Right. That's an, such an unusual, right, the government saying, well, this is an unpopular decision. Yeah. yeah so that's yeah. auditing.
1: It's almost a form of also, if I were to stretch the term, accountability.
0: Yes. Right. And it's unusual. Yeah, exactly. Revenue.
1: So imagine how that could be accentuated if these people managed to get their asses inside the parliament.
0: How do you see that happening? And, and, and like Well, there's a debate about it. Yeah, okay. and I saw you, you hinted at it too. Even that is yeah. also a contentious issue. So right. my view is,
1: long story short, is don't wait to get the perfect electoral law. Because mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. of all, you're not going to get it. Yeah, <laughs> I bet you that the crushing majority of the country's Christians yeah. are happy with, relatively, with the current law. Sure. It took, ask anybody who's been an expert in this, I'm certainly not one of them, but it took, I'm going to say at least 8 to 10 years to come up to the compromise that we have right now in the electoral law. Yeah. Do you think we're going to come up with a new one anytime soon? And because time is not on anybody's side, and the country is falling apart, there's yeah. no chance you can afford waiting on, basically, Lebanese amongst themselves negotiating a new law yeah. while the country is collapsing. So your best alternative, especially that you as a protest movement do not represent the entire country and you, can, you cannot impose your preferences on the entire Absolutely. country. yeah. You take the current electoral law, assuming that there's agreement to hold early elections, yes. right? Yes, right. And then you try to get as many of your people as possible inside, create a constituency that would be far more effective on those changes that you're calling for than outside. I yeah. just said that there is a interesting element of auditing and accountability from the outside. Mm-hmm. But I'm a strong mm-hmm. believer, I've always been, that you can make change far more effectively from the inside than from the outside.
0: Sure. So that, there is a way to see that translating into a political party. I mean, something that is... It doesn't have to be a political party. You could just have a set of individuals. It's that simple? right?
1: They don't have to be associated uh, with the any usual kind... Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, you could just... Groups of individuals, so no way it's coalitions. Be, so better to just whatever's left of the system, use it to your advantage and yes, get in. And I find it
1: quite absurd that a country's entire political experience, which is based on sectarianism,
0: could all of a sudden be eradicated like this. Now that actually ties into another point. I I get from what you're saying. You correct me if this is wrong, that you're in a way hoping for reform as opposed to revolution here. That this is I'm not hoping for anything, not hoping for
1: anything don't ask <laughs> don't ask me for my own point of view because I want to give you just the analyst's point of view, okay <laughs> Whatever you want to push for you as a Lebanese yeah if you have enough
0: people backing you, this is what matters the most okay, true, but in right? that, in that it's almost like you you said it in a way that perhaps not all Lebanese are on board for radical change. no. Right and that would No that's a fact. Right and that I think revolution there's an expectation of radical change within sure. Yeah so that's new yeah. foundation essentially. It's basically it's, yeah. a
1: new set of principles on how we
0: govern ourselves kind of right. like French revolution. Yes exactly. And I think the the phrase social pact has been used several times now where maybe some Lebanese don't want intercommunal politics they want something that resembles a secular state sure but perhaps most lebanese are not ready for that and both could be true right but if you're going to engage the state somehow Mm -hmm. and use it Mm -hmm. to at least improve it right there is a at least that to me sounds like the first attempt at state reform since the civil war sure push for your own ideals yeah from the inside and then
1: see if you can start creating a larger constituency, calling for those changes over time. Because we all agree, one of the biggest criticisms I received, which I thought was completely unfair, that all revolutions don't happen overnight. Yeah, I know that. I know that they don't. So using that logic, if you were to enter into um, government, government big G, not just cabinet, I mean like just Lebanese government, um, your number one priority is to enlarge your constituency as much as possible to reach the point of critical mass, basically, where you can push those ideals that you believe in right. or realize quite, uh, uh, um, quite usefully for you that you simply are not going to get those numbers. Yeah. Uh, and you've reached the dead end. And then at that point, hopefully you would start compromising and then working within a set of parameters that are more achievable. At really? this point I really do not blame frankly the protesters
0: for shooting for the moon. This is the time for it. Yeah. Okay, I get it. But it's interesting shooting for the moon in Lebanon. I mean it's it's like a m- all they're asking for is minor I- they're asking for dignity. But they're asking for everything. No, That's no, what yeah. makes it complicated. They're of asking course, for everything. Yeah. Okay. But it's amazing so, how just how complicated things are in Lebanon that the basic demands for yeah. are are shooting for the moon there. Which is No, very
1: no, no! I meant shooting for the moon, new political foundation.
0: When they say oh, okay, that everybody okay. needs to get the hell out, right, right. I mean, okay, what so do you really mean by that? Does going that back mean to October, them and their yeah. constituents? Yes, yes.
1: Because obviously, living conditions—that's not shooting for the moon. I get it. Those yeah. are basic rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about we don't want sectarian system anymore, and yes. we want to start anew, yeah. a new, essentially,
0: new page. Yeah, that is shooting for the moon.
1: Yeah. Well, that's not going to happen. It's virtually impossible to instill so much discipline in protesters who have been fed up with the rotten politics of the country and tell them to really narrow down their message. Yeah. Okay, that's unrealistic, and frankly, that's just mean, yeah. right? This is what, what I did in my article. I understand yes. that. Yes, but yes, yes, um, you, know, you can't just tell protesters who have been fed up with all sorts of things, sure. oppression, systematic violation of human rights, yeah. denial of everything that is basic to you, and tell them, please just focus on economic opportunity and just jobs, and then everything else, forget about it. Okay, that's not going to happen. It's never happened in any popular uprising throughout history. But at some point, after you show your frustration and you communicate your desires and your aspirations, at some point you realize, what is most critical for you? And what am I really calling for here? And what are my realistic... Demands here, and had we not faced such an acute crisis, I don't think these political questions would ever have been asked.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I really don't think so. It's, I mean, the economic pain is the reason why people are right. I mean, yeah,
1: and yes, it has allowed them to question now the entire system. Yeah, I get it, but I think they would have been able to tolerate for a longer period of time the politics of the country had the economics been yes. sort of at least manageable.
0: And We've gone to a point now yeah. where
1: they're questioning everything, uh, triggered by the economic crisis.
0: And I also think that sovereignty is central to the story. I think it's, at the beginning, the magic of the moment was and that included... What do you Hasballah. mean by sovereignty? I mean a post-war Lebanon where the state has full control over everything that happens in Lebanon. Sure, okay. Yeah, so in other words, I mean, to to get the really corrupt people that have destroyed Lebanon out, I think uh, it's it's an unachievable task when you have a sub-state group like Hezbollah able to curtail mm-hmm. those demands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, and I keep asking those questions because I, I cannot see <laughs> protesters, uh, Taking the reign and then Hezbollah saying, "You know what they want? We're out." Sure. That, that's that just impossible to see. I, I, yeah, I understand, and uh, I think it's quite sensible. But then again, you want to support the protesters. You don't want them to. You want them to find a way to, uh, to at least enter politics somehow in Lebanon. And I think it's you know these baby steps that ought, that in a way you're hinting at, which is, you know, use the electoral law, get in, do what you can. Maybe that is the only way to seek change in Lebanon. These are very small, but they're important steps.
1: I mean, the dust has to settle at some point. Yeah. And you just can't keep protesting forever. Yeah. I don't think that they're going to crumble just at the weight of pressure.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah.
1: Even if the international community, with whatever tools they might use to further punish Hez- Hezbollah or the country as a whole, yeah, I don't think that this is what really is going to break the ruling faction. Yeah. Uh, what is going to break it is something that's really bottom-up. Absolutely. And and that requires the little things and the big things. The little things that I listed in my article, whether it's organization, whether it's yeah. um, right strategy, whether it's leadership, right. uh, unity of purpose, common messaging… And those are not insanely difficult things. We saw a lot of those things actually being played out during the what we call the Cedar Revolution. Yes, yeah. But why was that much more effective at the time? Was the sovereignty cause easier to coalesce around? And I realize oftentimes when I read again what I wrote that I'm obviously asking for too much of the mm-hmm. protesters to, um, you know, better diagnose the challenge mm-hmm. and then realize that there are no clear, neat distinctions between the good guys and the bad guys right you you keep calling for the ouster of the corrupt ruling faction but you have to realize that they don't get parachuted from another universe or they don't have any support bases and constituencies that is true i did have that conversation with someone just recently from the country and um and she told me that if you do engage with the constituencies of these uh let's call them oligarchs, communal leaders, and what have you, things might turn violent. Right. And I understand that. There's a risk in that. Engaging but, but entire, like, like actually... Well, engaging, whether it's convincing, right, whether right. things yeah. get... You know how yeah. things go in the yeah, streets course, in Lebanon, things yeah. get out of control. Yeah. And especially when you go after the leaders of particular groups, it gets yeah. pretty messy and easily violent. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and so she told me that's why they really focus their rants and their anger on the leaders and not really on the communities or on the right. social groupings, right, right? Because it could easily spiral out of control and perhaps lead to civil war essentially. Yes, uh, I get that, but this entire project is risky, yeah, right from the start. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, there's no <laughs> shortcuts to this, yeah, and there are no easy ways to do it. It's true, but your biggest ally in this cause and in this fight is going to be those same people who looked exactly like you but happened to have different beliefs and happened to have different allegiances. Yeah. If you manage to convince them, which, by the way, a lot of that happened during the protests. I mean, you saw that some of them have sort of shed their sectarian uniforms, yeah. right, and then uh, started questioning their leaders and what have you, right? Yes. Now, a lot of them decided this was not a good idea and, they and you know, reverted yeah. back. I get it, but... And I don't know what the numbers are, okay, yeah, but yeah. something happened. That's true. And so what was needed was more of that, more yeah. of that convincing, more of that engagement, more of that communication, and sympathizing, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah. That required organization and that required commitment, not the yelling at the leaders. I mean, the leaders are not even listening. Okay, I mean, let's be honest. They were quite deaf to everything that was going on. And had they actually listened to anything, they would not have gone about (laughs) forming a government (laughs) in secrecy after how many months?
0: That's true. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, nothing.
1: Uh, That satisfied not a single wish of the protesters. It was a shadow government, essentially. It's true. Run by the same people, but putting on basically individuals who seemed professional, but they're definitely not independent. Yeah. Some good people in there. And I don't question their integrity, but I would certainly question some of their expertise and their independence, most importantly. Right. They're not independent.
0: They're not born out of the protest movement. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. So, channeling all
1: your anger and trying to convince people who are not even listening was always the wrong approach. And it's, it's, it's remarkable that it's the same exact kind of logic and analogy with Hezbollah. You want to mm-hmm. go ahead and you know disparage the secretary general and his entourage. You go ahead and do that. It feels good if you want to. Yeah. But the challenge, ultimate one, has always been engaging with the Shia community. And we saw something. Some on. of that.
0: Yeah, and insufficient. 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 Right. Okay. Um, insufficient to actually upend anything. Not but upend, but just start.
1: Creating some cracks yes, in yes, that yes. very yeah. special bond. We thought it was going to happen in the earlier elections with all the pain and suffering that they uh, have felt because of their involvement in Syria. Yeah. The economic troubles already emerging. Right. We thought, you know what? Maybe there would be some independent voices in that community that would break. Yeah, uh, And it didn't happen. It, did, it just didn't happen.
0: I want you to sort of help me understand a rift that I've seen particularly when it comes to Washington's support of the Lebanese army. Mm-hmm. And I I'm not I'm not an expert on this. Mm-hmm. All I know is that there has been a consistent approach to the Lebanese army. There's been a almost like a a glitch where it was some aid was delayed for a few weeks earlier last year. Other than that though the policies have not shifted. Is that approach still the right approach, at least when it comes to what is happening in, in Lebanon in terms of Hezbollah and Hezbollah's influence vis-a-vis Which the approach? State. You mean the suspension
1: or termination of aid that, or us continuing the aid? Continuing the aid. Oh, I, sure.
0: Absolutely. And that is an essential component for America's security concerns, but not necessarily for Lebanese protesters in that sense. It doesn't get them anywhere. It's a...
1: No, it's almost, I mean, it does have, have effects on the general provision of security. Yeah. And one of the things that I mentioned in my article is that Lebanon, relatively speaking, has been lucky in terms of its own story of protests because the demonstrators have been able to take it to the streets with fewest, I'm going to say not zero, mm. but fewest security incidents as compared to, of course, cases like Egypt and obviously Syria going to civil war right. and many others that have been much more dangerous, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, should the army disintegrate or not be able to do its duties in part because of the termination of aid, then of course that
0: matters to the Lebanese, of course. Yeah. So so it's a, regardless, it's important for Lebanon too. The Lebanese are also impacted by of this. Of course. I mean, yeah. it's their
1: army. What do you expect? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If there's no army in the country, then, uh, well, hello, anarchy.
0: But in just in terms of pressure, does any... I mean, that suspension, do you think it yielded anything beneficial when there was some hesitation here in Washington? Has
1: it yielded anything beneficial?
0: Do the, does the you Lebanese know army... I never re-
1: thought about it yeah. this way. Uh, my immediate answer now, unless I change my mind later, is not a single thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no. Right.
1: All it did, yeah. basically, which has been apparent, yeah. is jeopardize a relationship, basically, with a key partner in Lebanon, which happens to be now, let's face it, the only interlocutor that the United States has in the country because they've sort of given up on the political class. Yes. Okay, even its old friends, they've given up on them, okay? Because a lot of them are in, basically, what we call entente with Hezbollah, right? They're sort of going to have reached an understanding with it, even its fiercest uh, enemies, right? Whether it's the Lebanese forces, whether it's uh, Saad Hariri and his group. So the only... Ally, partner, interlocutor that the United States has in Lebanon. Its only point of access is the army, even with its own relationship with Hezbollah. But there, yeah, still, yeah, I, yeah, think, that, yeah, I think, I yeah. think, of course, there's a debate here in terms of you know uh, the problematic ties between Hezbollah and uh, and the army, but. The, That goes across the country. Hezbollah is part of the government. What do you expect? Yeah. And the army doesn't operate in a political vacuum. I mean, Mm -hmm. they take orders from the civilians, which is a good thing, by the way. Right. And if the civilians or the entire government is in bed with Hezbollah, what do you expect the army to do? To come up with decisions on its own and sever ties with Hezbollah? They're not going to do that. Right. And they're also not going to disarm it because it will completely fall apart. We've seen that before, obviously. Mm Um. The strongest voice to this date, which I don't think will change anytime soon, uh, for maintaining that kind of relationship and maintaining the aid is where I used to serve, which is in the Department of Defense. Right. Uh, right. I think the State Department has some sensible voices um, that also wish to preserve the relationship. Yeah. The biggest threats have been basically from
0: the White House. Right. Right. That's where the suspension was born, in a way. This is where area. it came up. With. I mean, yeah. I had
1: to deal with it basically on an almost weekly basis when I was in. Uh, we knew exactly where it was coming from, and yes. we were quite concerned about it. There was an entire interagency process trying to counter those calls. Yeah, And a lot of it was uh, was going on basically
0: secretly, with yeah. very little transparency and even deception. And that is the first time in, in many years that you've seen that kind of shift, that sudden shift in... in uh
1: uh, well, at least since we sort of, I'd say, um, re-upped our military assistance program right. to the army. I mean, of course, we had a whole huge program in the 80s. We're not going to go to that No, no, phase, that's... Yeah, sure, sure, sure. since, let's say...
0: At least since The Battle of
1: Nahr al-Barid. Okay, so
0: 2008 so or so. So where we realized, yeah.
1: like, holy shit, yeah. that army really is vastly lacking in equipment and in training and right, everything. right. And if a band of terrorists could take over an entire uh, refugee camp and perhaps parts of the north, Mm. that's not conducive to U.S. interests. And so uh, Mm. after that, this is where we started re-upping, you know, uh, our assistance to uh, the LAV. And it has grown and grown and grown to the point where it has now gotten to be the single most successful military partnership that we have in the entire Middle East. Of course, minus the conventional partnership that the United States has with Israel.
0: Oh, really? So it's, I did not know that. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So it's a very important relationship then. I it's,
1: cannot tell you what my colleagues in CENTCOM used to <laughs> say about uh, the Lebanese Armed Forces and the I investments that. that they've made in the lab and senior leadership in DOD. There's a consensus. You know, this always, is what kills me about this whole thing is that you do realize that this is the single most successful case of security partnership that we mm-hmm, have in mm-hmm. the Middle East yeah. minus the Israelis. Well, I did not know that. Including the Gulf Arabs. Okay. And yet you want to damage that because of political concerns that have nothing to do, by the way, with the Lebanese army? Why do you punish the army yeah. if your concerns are elsewhere? If I have a kid who is misbehaving, why would I go slap his sister? <laughs> that
0: would be very odd
1: punishment. I mean, sister didn't it do might anything. send a message, but it's
0: the wrong message. Well, exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and if the sister is very vulnerable, a.k.a. Yeah. country Lebanon, right. it might actually backfire. Yeah, mind you, the army is not a perfect institution, okay? There are no angels there. Right, right. And the particulars matter. Every single case of oppression matters. Yes. I'm talking big picture stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are always exceptions to every case that you're talking about, okay? Sure, sure. And there are always imperfections, limitations, and what have you. And the army, boy, has a ton of those, obviously. Yeah. But big picture stuff in terms of strategic interest that the United States has in Lebanon. Right. This is a partnership worth
0: preserving. Bilal, I really appreciate your time uh, willing to speak to me in a place that I knew fifteen years ago and I'm glad that the Middle East Institute has been gutted completely. It's now a modern uh center of thought. <laughs> it was actually quite nice to walk in for the first time in, in many years. And I I really have fond memories of this place and I'd like to I like knowing that it is sort of uh it's become once again an important uh, center for thought when it comes to the Middle East.
1: My first job after graduating from A B is um an internship at MEI. Uh, Which
0: department were you in?
1: We were in uh, what we called then the programs department.
0: Okay, I was publication. Uh,
1: this was a very different place 20 years ago.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, and just to witness the, uh, I wouldn't even say evolution, I would say transformation, yeah. basically, of MEI over the years. And now with having someone who I, is a dear friend and someone I respect tremendously, with Paul at the helm. Um, it's just quite exciting for the future of this
0: place. It's also nice to see that the library is getting a makeover. Uh, yes, positive. it is. Yeah. <laughs> and we're getting a fountain. <laughs> and you're getting... That fountain used to work, but I think well, it used well, to work 50 years ago. Well, now we're getting a new and one. A new, see, why use the old one when you can get a new one? Exactly. Bilal, thank you. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon, or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.